Today on episode number 37 of Life After Sight Loss Radio, I've got a great conversation with a local therapist where we discuss some of the issues that people losing their sight will face, why it's important for self-care for the sighted supporter, and why it's so crucial to hold on to hope. Welcome to Life After Sight Loss Radio, the podcast helping you discover life after sight loss. My name is Derek Daniel. I am your host and resident VIP, aka visually impaired person. Hey, if you're new to the program, well, welcome aboard. This is the place where we do product reviews, life advice, encouragement, how-tos, and so much more, all with the express purpose of helping individuals and families who are going through or facing physical sight loss. Hey there, guys. Welcome to today's episode. If you're new, welcome to the show. And if you're returning, well, welcome back. I'm so glad that you are here. Hey, today's episode is a very special one as I've got a great conversation with a local therapist who is not only a licensed marriage and family therapist, but she's a certified vision rehabilitation therapist. So we're going to get into all of that great stuff. I've got a great discussion where we we talk about what therapy's really like. We talk about how uh, the sighted supporters role, you know, what it's all about and how important it is for them to take care of themselves. We just got some great stuff to talk about. Plus, she's going to share her own story of vision loss as well. Before we jump into everything, as always, I want to let you know that you can find the show notes to today's episode over at lifeaftersightloss.com slash 037. There, you're going to find contact information for this gal. And if you want to get a hold of her, you can definitely hop on over to the show notes to do that. So again, show notes can be found at lifeaftersightloss.com slash 037. Now, a bit of background on my guest today. Uh, a few weeks ago, I did an episode about uh, five benefits to therapy and counseling, and I'll link that in today's show notes. But basically, I, I reached out to this gal and I said, hey, you're a therapist and you're actually helping people who are visually impaired. I'd love to talk to you. And so we got connected and were able to chat and come to find out she was just full of great information. And she is so many great things. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist. She is a licensed mental health counselor and she's a certified vision rehabilitation therapist, which she's going to talk all about here in just a few minutes. But I want to welcome to the program today, Sarah Clark. Sarah, thank you so much for being here and joining us for the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Awesome. Well, first of all, let's jump into a little bit about you. Now, a lot of times people will say on a podcast, oh, I don't I don't care about the person. I just want to know their expertise. But I think <laughs> what you have to offer, not only your expertise, but just your personal story is really interesting because you yourself are actually visually impaired as well. So can you give us a little bit of background on that and what you might have and, and how it affects you know what you do on a regular basis? Well, I have retinitis pigmentosa. I can't ever say that I had perfect vision. Even as a young kid, I never had 20-20. I was always struggling to see different things, but they didn't figure out what it was or what was causing the degeneration in my vision or the inability to see things that other people could see until I was about 17 years old. I finally got sent to a specialist who knew what they were doing and diagnosed me and gave me that wonderful news of eventually you're going to be blind. (laughs) And, you know, they always say we don't know how quickly that's going to happen, if it'll happen at all, but there's just that chance. 
Now, for you, I don't want to ask your age because that's uh, rude of to ask a woman her age. But how long has, uh, without giving too much information, how long did it take for you to get kind of where you are at this point? Oh, I don't mind. I'm in my mid thirties. Um, but yeah, I at the time of my diagnosis, they'd taken so long to figure it out. I was already considered legally blind at that point, and then over the next probably eight to 10 years, I started losing more and more vision to the point where I only had light perception. I can see if lights are on or off. I can see some shadows sometimes, but that's about it. Now, let me ask you this, because I think it'll lead us into our conversation naturally. What Mm -hmm. and how did you kind of, what did you do and how did you cope with this, you know, sitting in that doctor's chair and, and they're like, okay, you're going to be, you know, blind at some point in your life. How did you and your family deal with that on an emotional, mental, you know, all that kind of level? Not well. Um, <laughs> I don't know anybody who has handled it well, and I definitely didn't. I was, you know, 17, ready to start college soon and be independent and do everything that I had planned for my life. And the doctor, within a matter of moments, basically told me I needed to rethink all of that, that I wouldn't be able to drive from that point forward. I should probably reconsider my major for what I was planning for college that I would struggle to be independent. Um, And I didn't know any better at the time, but the doctor definitely didn't know what he was talking about in terms of the lifestyle aspects. Because he even told me I should consider whether or not I should have children because it's genetic. Mm. Um, And for somebody who's had their whole life already planned out ahead of them, it was just devastating. Um, I sat there crying in the doctor's office. I definitely went through a phase of depression and doing stupid teenage self-destructive things. Mm. But at the same time, I have always been very stubborn and resilient. And it was my new goal in life to prove that doctor wrong. So (laughs) I came up with a new life. (laughs) Yeah. And I I guess you have proved him wrong because you're doing well, as we said at the top of the show. Uh, You are a a counselor, you're a therapist, you're licensed through the state, and you're also a certified vision rehabilitation therapist as well. So why don't we sort of transition here and and definitely as we talk about it, any personal things you have about your life or you're more than willing to share. But why don't we jump into a little bit of the aspects of your professional life. Uh, First of all, you're a licensed marriage and family therapist and a licensed mental health counselor. Is that correct? Yes, correct. So what kind of things do you do with those kinds of licenses that aren't necessarily specifically visually impaired? Um, I do a lot of couples counseling. Um, Marriage and family therapy really incorporates in all aspects of the family, uh, but primarily I focus on couples just because that's my passion. Um, I do individual counseling as well for people struggling with anxiety, depression, you know, those things that just happen with normal transitions and life changes. Mm. And then I got into the vision rehab field um, even way back before I started counseling. So that was a natural transition for me. So with the Certified Vision Rehabilitation Therapist, the CVRT, which is something mm-hmm. I, I don't think I'd actually heard of. I'm, I probably heard of it, but it, it wasn't like until I saw it after letters after somebody's name. I'm like, I wonder yeah. what that is. So can you tell us a little bit about what does a CVRT do for somebody who is visually impaired? 
Sure. Yeah, you're definitely not alone. Not very many people have heard of it, and there's very few of us around the country. Um, it's a very specialized field where we learn how to teach all of the adaptive skills that a person who is going through vision loss needs to learn, whether that be Braille, computers, with adaptive technology, uh, personal management, medication management, just how to live from day to day doing all the things that you want to be able to do. And then it also incorporates in adjustment counseling and some other soft skills like that. So I was doing that for probably about five years before I ended up getting my master's in counseling and making this my primary focal point. Interesting. So you were a uh, CVRT before you were the licensed counselor? Is that what? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So when you started with people that were visually impaired, were you seeing people that, you know, was it elderly people losing their sight? Was it children? Like, what was your sort of main clientele? It was a really wide range. I think the statistics now are the leading cause of legal blindness is macular degeneration, which mm-hmm. primarily hits the older population. Mm-hmm. But the leading cause of total blindness is diabetes. And oh. that uh, is all people, all ranges from kids through senior citizens. It's a really, really um, devastating condition. Mm-hmm. And visual impairment is just one of those components that usually will occur. So I worked with kids as young as preschool age, all the way up through senior citizens. Wow. So uh, I guess yeah. I knew I knew uh, macular degeneration, or as I call it on the podcast, MACD. Um, I'm ah. tr- trying to get that <laughs> trying to get that patented. We'll see. Um, but that's uh, I knew that was the leading cause of legal blindness, but I didn't realize diabetes was uh, the leading cause of total blindness. Um, mm-hmm. That's really interesting, and like you said, can hit such a wide gamut of ages and and people and different situations. So yeah. you you see this you know wide variety of people, then you go into sort of a, a professional field helping marriage and family and and individuals and such so with the crossover where and maybe the question is where do you see counseling helping people that are going through visual impairment obviously you're teaching them you know braille and and assistive technology things like that but where is the emotional mental aspect come in when it comes to helping somebody who's losing their vision due to whatever issue it might be yeah i would say that is my Passion and my main focus is helping with that emotional component. I don't do very much of the rehab teaching skills part anymore, but I still have that knowledge and that jumps in every once in a while to conversations. Mm -hmm. But it's really the emotional component that people struggle with the most. And sometimes that is what could be keeping them from learning the skills and living the life Mm -hmm. that they want. Mm -hmm. Even if they have all the training in the world, if they're still struggling with the shame of having people see them using a cane or the depression that almost always occurs at some point in the adjustment period, mm-hmm. uh, they, it is really, really difficult for them to transition into having a new life. Mm-hmm. And so that is my main area and where I 
put most of my attention when I'm working with people. Yeah, and we talk a lot about that on on the podcast and on the videos and such because there's so uh, it seems to be so little discussed about the emotional sort of toll that it takes on you, you and your mm-hmm. family. Um, yeah. you know, for whether it's spouse or parents or children or whatever, um, people don't talk about that a lot. They say, "Oh, right. well, here's how to use your iPhone," but if you're mm-hmm. depre- too depressed to get out of bed, then <laughs> using your iPhone yeah. isn't a huge deal. So when Absolutely. You, when you talk about sort of that emotional turmoil, what kind of you mentioned depression? What kind of things do you see when people present to you for counseling? What kinds of things do they struggle with uh, the most? Depression and anxiety are the two most common, but in general, just all people experiencing vision loss, even if they haven't gotten to those extremes, experience you know moods that are fluctuating based on circumstances. They experience a high level of stress because of all the uncertainty and all the unknowns and all the new things they have to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, they experience isolation and they start self-limiting their activities and their interactions with other people because it's just so much more challenging. And everybody struggles with that transition emotionally in some component. Mm-hmm. A, a, big, a big part of it is also the shame I mean, we've come a long way in terms of our society with how people view visual impairments, but I have yet to encounter a person who's lost vision who doesn't feel ashamed of it in some form. Yeah, that's so interesting. I've talked to people and, you know, heard from people that it, it's whether it's the shame of like using a white cane, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. or uh, sitting two inches away from the computer, uh, that sort of thing. It's it is that shame. And, and so maybe we can talk about that for just a second. Like, what is it do you think about being visually impaired? Does it does it make us feel like we're, I don't know, less than sighted people? Have we have we gone down an identity? Like, what kind of things do you think cause or bring on that that quote shame? Yeah. Yeah, it is a very specific thing to visual impairment. And it, there's a lot of research that's been done that says, you know, when just the general population is surveyed and they talk about different sensory disabilities and which would be the worst to possibly have, it's always blindness. Yes. But if you talk to people who are blind, it's not a big deal once you've adjusted. <laughs> right. Um, and so it's this stigma of blindness is just the worst thing in the world because you can't imagine how you can get by, how you can do daily tasks, how you can contribute to your family, your society, your community without sight. Because we, you, I mean, typically human beings rely on vision for 90% of the information that they mm, gather. Yes, yeah. But when that vision is taken away, your other senses will fill in those gaps and you can still do pretty much everything you want to do. But there is that automatic before you know that what you're going to be capable of and what it, resources and equipment and things are available to you, you do lose a sense of identity. You feel ashamed that you're not as good as everybody else. You feel like you don't have a purpose anymore. You feel a loss of independence, which is a huge, huge component of people's identity. And there is that automatic shame response when you feel like you internally are not good enough. And when that loss of vision comes, we all have that we're not good enough. We're not as good as we were when we had sight. 
It's so true. And and what I found to be interesting, and maybe you can relate to this as well, is a lot of people will identify themselves after vision impairment with their lack of sight, but I've never mm-hmm. met a person who identifies themselves with their ability to see. Like right. <laughs> nobody says like, I'm a great person because I can drive. Absolutely. <laughs> but, but yeah, once it's gone, that becomes all encompassing. You know, any problem that you have, automatically your brain jumps to, well, it's because of my vision loss, whether it is or not. Absolutely. And I think that plays out in uh, not only our um, ability to do certain things, but in our relationships as well. You know, this component of, um, wow, I'm not as good as I used to be as a spouse mm-hmm. or something like that. So maybe we can talk about that for a second. You said and you mentioned you uh, your specialty is uh, you know helping couples. So how have you found that it affects couples when one of the members is losing vision? It has a major, major impact on the relationship and in a lot of different ways. You know, the, the, as you call them, the sighted supporters are struggling with losing the person that they were with because the person who is visually impaired is going through this major identity crisis. Mm-hmm. They're becoming dependent because they don't have the skills yet. They are dealing with all of the grief and loss. And so who they were totally changes for a short amount of time, hopefully a short amount of time for some (laughs) people. (laughs) It lasts a little longer, but, um, the sighted supporter in that couple is faced with not only not knowing what the person is going through, because it's not something you can really totally understand without having some personal firsthand experience with it, Mm -hmm. but they want to be able to help and don't know how. They don't know when they should help or if they should help. They don't know what is going to be the outcome of the relationship. And they've kind of lost the security and stability that they felt before the site loss. Um, So there's a, a really significant change that occurs in relationships. And most people, I would say, it's not necessarily the vision loss that is the major problem in the relationship. It's how the person who's losing their vision is coping with that vision loss that mm. determines how badly the relationship is impacted. Mm. That's an interesting uh, way to look at it because I think so many times we blame it on the sight loss and, mm-hmm. you know, this is all bad because of it. But sight loss is, is just a, um, we could call it, you know, a tragic event in our life and how right. we deal with that event then does affect you know our relationships and and all those sort of things as well. So it's an interesting way to look at it. Um, how would you say that um, successful uh, couples, sighted supporters, and visually impaired people? What do successful people do to sort of overcome and not necessarily get over it necessarily, but you know move forward right. in what they're doing? A lot of it depends on communication and really seeking out information and helping each other to learn as you go. Because I mean, I'm sure as you know, one of the responsibilities as a person with a visual impairment is to teach other people how you want to be treated. Mm -hmm. Because every single person wants something a little bit different. So there is no rule book of how to treat somebody with vision loss. You have to teach teach everyone around you how you want to be treated. And so when you're first experiencing it, If you don't know, you can't really teach anybody, obviously. (laughs) And so that's a difficult phase to get through if you don't seek out support, if you don't 
initially try to start problem solving and coming up with strategies and really just do a lot of trial and error, you know, really keep communicating what you're going through with each other. And the sighted supporter also has to play a role in that and not pretending that it's all okay. And that, you know, their struggles are less than just because they're not the one experiencing the vision loss. They're just struggling in a different way. Uh, but keeping the line of communication open, doing some research together, getting support where and when they can, really, really trying to keep the relationship together and help each other and support each other through the transition mm -hmm. is what makes the biggest difference. Yeah. And, and go ahead. Oh, oh no, I was just going to say, and if you don't do that from the beginning, that's okay. You can do it at any point. There's no real point at which it has to start. So um, now you mentioned that the site is supporter, you know, making sure that they are communicating how they're feeling, that their problems are not less just because they're, you know, not the one losing their sight. And you mentioned something one time about this phrase, compassion fatigue. Can you kind mm -hmm. of talk about that? What is compassion fatigue and, and how does it look in a person's life? Compassion fatigue is really just a, a fancy word for or phrase for when somebody gets burned out because they are doing everything for someone else and not taking care of themselves. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, our primary responsibility in whether it's in a relationship or just in our own lives is to take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times when someone we love is experiencing something tragic like vision loss, we forget about ourselves. We put ourselves down at the very bottom of the priority list if we're still on the list at all. <laughs> and you put all of your time, energy, and attention into helping this other person. And so that is a formula for disaster because mm -hmm. it's just, I mean, it's kind of a cliche at this point, but if you don't take care of yourself, you aren't capable of taking care of other people. Yeah, so true. So, so true. Yeah. I think that, I mean, compassion fatigue could be as simple as, you know, having to get away for a while and as something as major as, you know, a relationship falling apart and, you know, mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff. So the self-care of, um, you know, the side of support is so important. And we've talked about that on the podcast. My wife's been on a, a few times and talked about that from her viewpoint as well. And so from your vantage point as somebody who's working with people in a more clinical way, um, the self-care is so, so, so important. Absolutely. Without the self-care, you get frustrated, you get burned out, you start feeling taken for granted um, it can implode into, you know, something else like starting to rely on other unhealthy coping mechanisms like, you know, drinking or just overwhelming stress that gets to the point of having breakdowns or panic attacks. I mean, there's an endless list of how these things start to manifest in your life, but it all boils down to if you're taking care of yourself, it eliminates all of these other issues. Very well said. Now, you mentioned something that I like. You said that, you know, if you're not doing this from the beginning, there's, you know, you can definitely start anytime. So let's mm -hmm. say there's somebody listening and they're like, well, you know, maybe I didn't start, but but therapy or counseling or whatever we want to call it is sounds interesting, but I'm kind of nervous, you know, you know about it. I, I've never been to a counselor. I've never been to a therapist. And now I'm visually impaired and struggling with other things as well. So what can someone mm -hmm. expect if they're like, 
you know, and obviously you can't say for every single therapist or counselor out there, but what can someone expect right. when they come into a therapeutic setting? What can they expect to, you know, gain or receive or what's it what's it really like sitting on the couch, if you will? I can definitely speak to what it's like for me and my counseling office. Mm-hmm. Everybody has their own style. And I always recommend that whatever you are seeking counseling for, you make sure that you are choosing a provider who has that specialization Mm -hmm. because, or if they don't have the specialization and you're in an area where nobody does, you know, seek out somebody who they can consult with if they're willing to learn Mm -hmm. that specialization, because that's another component. You know, this is a very small field. I think it's about 1% of the United States population has a visual impairment or something like that. And so it is not a, a widespread specialty that counselors have. So, but there are a lot of them that are willing to learn. There are a lot of them that I've worked with in teaching, but in more specifics of what to expect, counseling is really, really individualized. And each person is going to come into the session with their own experiences, their own struggles, things that they're doing well with, things that they don't know how to deal with. And so, all of the sessions are going to be focused on what is the most important things for that unique individual. You know, I can say what themes come up most often, what topics we, you know, usually will talk about with pretty much everybody, but the actual therapy experience is driven by the client themselves. Mm. So for somebody who's a bit nervous, a bit fearful, saying like, well, I want to go in and, and have them say I'm crazy or, or have, you know, whatever the case may be, like, mm-hmm. how would you respond to somebody who's like, I'm really fearful of sitting with somebody who's a quote therapist, you know, in that regard? Yeah, I would say it's, it's not a scary thing. You can always talk to the therapist first before coming in or do the session by phone. That's another really common thing that we do. You know, as someone with a visual impairment, transportation is not the easiest thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, we will do our best to accommodate whatever the person needs, but it's not something to be afraid of. It's basically having a con- confidential person that you can talk to and tell them whatever is going on with you. And they are there to provide empathy and support for whatever that might be. And a lot of what we do is help to normalize what each individual is going through. And I can say specifically with vision loss, there are so many people who experience things and they think they are the only ones that have ever mm-hmm. experienced it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they won't even tell me what's going on and I'll suggest, you know, a few things that are fairly common. And I usually get a response of, wow, you know, I, I thought it was just me. I wasn't going to say anything because I thought I was going crazy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, especially some of the really unusual things that sometimes our eye doctors don't even tell us to expect, like the the Charles Bonnet syndrome, mm-hmm. where people feel like they are hallucinating. Yeah, absolutely. And so they don't actually say it to anybody because they think they're going crazy and they'll 
get locked up somewhere if they tell somebody that they're seeing things that aren't there. It, yes, and I think that's that's why it's so important to connect with people that are visually impaired and have sort of mm-hmm. walked the journey a little bit ahead of you so that you can say, oh, I feel this way or whatever the case is. For example, I, I spoke recently about my wife and I were car shopping and I was mm-hmm. talking about how it was difficult just because, you know, it brings up those memories of not being able to drive or those feelings of, you know, inadequacy and so forth. And so many people, mm-hmm. you know, they recognize that and they're like, yeah, I feel that way too. And so we have to not be afraid afraid of saying these things out loud because like there I bet I, you know there's somebody else out there who's felt that way and dealt with something similar as well I'm, I'm sure that like you said you meet with people who are visually impaired and and you can probably from your vantage point say well yeah this and this and this and they're like wow you you feel that way yeah. too <laughs> yeah there's a lot of that way I mean we have this tendency to feel like we're alone and most of the times, and it's not even specific to particular eye conditions, because I mean, there are certain commonalities between all visual impairments, that if you seek out support, if you find friends online, or join a support group, or, you know, connect with people in other ways through different groups and organizations, you will find that there are just so many things specific to vision loss that most people are experiencing. And you won't know unless you seek out people and start talking. Yeah. And it's always a bit, uh, I think, nerve wracking at first because you're like, oh, especially if you've been sighted for, you know, a good number of years and and now you're venturing out into this world of visual impairment. You're like, do I belong in this world? And sometimes Mm -hmm. it probably feels like you don't belong anywhere because you're not sighted. But, you know, you don't really feel like a, quote, blind person. So it's it's a bit hazy in the middle, you know, that that well, and there's. There's that uh, in between of the, I don't want to belong to this group. Oh, and absolutely. when you're first experiencing it, you don't want to connect with other people who are visually impaired or blind because you don't want to be one of them. And <laughs> so true. that's a really hard phase to go through. In addition to everything else is you will find as you encounter other people who are experiencing similar things that it's a population in itself. You know, there's going to be people that are similar to you. There's going to be people that are very different. There's going to be people you like, people you don't like. (laughs) But you just have to start looking for connections somewhere and information somewhere. And you will find the people that fit into the life that you want to have. Absolutely. So for people that are out there and they're listening, they're like, you know, she doesn't sound bad. Maybe therapy or counseling wouldn't be all, all too bad. Uh, what would be a, a first step for those people uh, if they're interested? Uh, granted, they may live in lots of different areas, but what's what's a good first step that they can take to sort of jump into that counseling relationship? Sure. Um, I would say I'm happy to speak with anybody, whether they're in this state or another state or another country. Um, you know, you can get in touch by phone or by email. We can have a conversation. I can help. I always work with connecting people locally to whatever services are available. So if I'm not the best fit, I help find somebody who is. Um, so yeah, I mean, getting in touch would be a really good start. There's also a lot of other organizations that are local to different areas that would be able to refer to counseling with someone else in the area, whichever 
is where people are living. So can can people contact, like, could they email a therapist or counselor and say, and ask questions and, you know, without making like, I think sometimes we're, uh, we think of it like salesmen, like, well, I don't want to ask questions because then they're going to, you know, convince me to make a sale or something. Like, right. <laughs> are they sort of allowed to do that without making a commitment to counseling? Absolutely. You can, uh, most counselors will at the very least answer emails and questions that way. If they have the time, they'll do it by phone. I'm open to doing either. Even if the person has absolutely no interest in counseling and just needs a referral or a resource or, you know, some sort of guidance on what to first step to take, I'm happy to answer any of those questions. There is that never any commitment for counseling. Even if you go into your first session and you find it's not the right fit, you can simply tell the counselor that. I mean, we're trained to not take those things personally and make sure that the client's needs are the number one priority. You don't get a sales pitch. You get <laughs> somebody who's empathetic and willing to do what they can do to help you get to where you need to be. Yeah. And I think we've talked about that on the podcast before this idea of like, well, now I'm stuck with this person, even though I'm not getting any help. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's important that, you know, as you said, and we said before, you know, it's, it's important to say this isn't, this isn't really working or, you know, um, I, I think somebody else would be more helpful, something like that to not be afraid. And like you said, the, the counselor's not going to take it personally. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's their job to find you the best support for you, whether that's them or somebody else. Um, so I think, you know, as you said, uh, d- don't be afraid to speak up and say, you know, this, I don't, I'm not sure this is working. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, we all have our own styles, our own frameworks of how we work. And I mean, there have been times where I say after meeting somebody or talking to them on the phone for a few minutes, I can say, you know, from what you've said, I know the perfect person for you and it's not me. And I pass on their information. Well, and, and that's good to know because there are people out there who aren't just going to try to, you know, take all your money and, and move on. It's like they're actually trying to help you, you know, and move forward. Uh, Absolutely. So as we wrap things up here, Sarah, a couple of last things. First of all, um, if you could give anybody who's out there who's sort of struggling with vision loss, whether they're the sighted supporter or the VIP or whatever, what's uh, maybe one or two pieces of advice that you could give them when it comes to dealing with sort of the emotional, mental aspect of losing vision? I would say the most important is to not lose hope. I think that's one of the biggest contributors to how quickly people make progress is if they know that there is light at the end of the tunnel, that there is the potential for them to move forward and have a happy, healthy life that they want, that sight loss is not the end and very often is the beginning of possibly a very different life, but many times a better life. Mm having that hope and holding on to that and doing whatever you need to do to keep that hope throughout the transition is one of the most important things. The second I would say would be to not to be afraid to ask for help and look for information and resources to support you throughout the process because nobody who loses vision, unless they've experienced it with a family member or friend or something like that, knows how to do this. Mm -hmm. But there are plenty of people out here there who have been through it, who know how to help, how to support you, how to guide you into regaining the independence that you want. And 
many, many people struggle with asking for that help. And there's nothing wrong with asking for help when you need it. It's a temporary thing. You know, (laughs) once you get back to being independent, you ask for help a lot less often. So true. Yeah. And I just, I really value the idea of, of holding on to hope because it's easy to lose it. You know, whenever you're, um, going through vision loss, it's easy to be like, well, that's nope, but this is the end. And, and it's mm-hmm. funny, it's funny how you said it. it's just ironic that, um, you said, you know, it's not the end, but it's the beginning of something else. And the tagline I always use on the podcast and everything I do is sight loss isn't the end. It's just the beginning. So, yeah. uh, it's so true. Um, well, finally, I know that people are probably excited to hear you and they're like, wow, I gotta, I gotta talk to this gal. She's awesome. So how can people get a hold of you? What's, what's your online presence, if you will? Oh, sure. Um, my counseling practice is called Clark Counseling Solutions, and the, they have there's a website. It's just ClarkCounselingSolutions.com. There's also Facebook and Twitter accounts for that. My email address is ClarkCounselingSolutions at gmail.com. Awesome, and I will make sure to put all of that into the show notes so people okay. can get a hold of that and, and they can contact you if they have any questions or anything else. So, Sarah, thank you so much for being part of the podcast today and delivering so much great value to all the listeners. Oh, my pleasure. I'm happy to help. And that does it for my conversation with Sarah Clark. Sarah, if you're listening, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. You were full of so many great things. And I just want to uh, reemphasize something she said there at the end, holding on to hope. That's so crucial whenever you lose your sight, whether you're the VIP or the sighted supporter or otherwise, because hope is really what's important. Yes, it's difficult right now when you first lose your sight. Um, yes, it can be challenging physically, emotionally, mentally, but holding on to hope that while things you know look dark now, they're going to get better each and every day. So uh, another big shout out to her. Don't forget, you can find all her contact information in the show notes at lifeaftersightloss.com slash 037. Maybe you want to reach out to her, ask her some more questions, you know, get involved with her uh, in a counseling way. Whatever you want to do, reach out to her because I'm sure she's going to be super helpful to you. So again, another big thanks for Sarah Clark being part of the podcast today. Hey, as we wrap things up today, I just want to wish a very happy Thanksgiving to all of those who are celebrating Thanksgiving this week. I hope you have a great time with your family and you don't eat too much food. Oh, what the heck? Who am I kidding? I hope you eat a bunch of food and you're miserable and take a four-hour nap afterwards. Uh, But a happy Thanksgiving to all of you. And if you're not celebrating Thanksgiving, hey, you know what? Go ahead and eat a bunch of food anyway because it's a great time to do it. Hope you have a great weekend. By the way, if you like today's content and you'd like to hear more of it, make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast. You can do that at the show notes, lifeaftersightloss.com slash 037. There are buttons for Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and on your Android phone as well. So check out the show notes so that you can subscribe and not miss another single episode. And while you're surfing the World Wide Web, I'd love for you to leave a rating and review in iTunes. You can let other people know what you think about the podcast with a star rating and a small review, uh, letting those folks know when they find the podcast, hey, this is what they have to look forward to as well. So if you'd be so kind to do that, I'd so appreciate it. And finally, don't forget to find me on Facebook and Twitter, following all the latest news with Life After Sight Loss, the website, uh, the videos, the podcast, all that good stuff. Find me on Facebook and Twitter, and let's connect. 
And that's going to do it for me this week, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. And remember that all the information found in today's episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. If you're in need of professional, medical, or legal advice, please seek out a specialist in your area or somebody like Sarah who can help you out with your other needs. Hey, thanks for listening, guys. And until next time, remember that sight loss isn't the end. It's just the beginning. My name is Derek Daniel from lifeaftersightloss.com, and I'll see you in the next one.